You're listening to Randall Wallace Presents, formerly Bridging the Political Gap, the number one American history podcast of 2024 by Feedspot.com. This is a sad time for all people. We have suffered a loss that cannot be weighed. For me, it is a deep personal tragedy. I know that the world shares the sorrow that Mrs. Kennedy and her family bear. I will do my best. That is all I can do. I ask for your help and God's. of the House, members of the Senate, my fellow Americans, all I have I would have given gladly not to be standing here today. The greatest leader of our time has been struck down by the foulest deed of our time. Today, John Fitzgerald Kennedy lives on in the immortal words and works that he left behind. He lives on in the mind and memories of mankind. He lives on in the hearts of his countrymen. No words are sad enough to express our sense of loss. No words are strong enough to express our determination to continue the forward thrust of America that he began. The dream of conquering the vastness of space, the dream of partnership across the Atlantic and across the Pacific as well, the dream of a Peace Corps in less developed nations, the dream of education for all of our children, the dream of jobs for all who seek them and need them, the dream of care for our elderly, the dream of an all-out attack on mental illness, and above all, the dream of equal rights for all Americans, whatever their race or color. 
these and other American dreams have been vitalized by his drive and by his dedication. And now the ideas and the ideals which he so nobly represented must and will be translated into effective action. This nation will keep its commitments from South Vietnam to West Berlin. We will be unceasing in the search for peace, resourceful in our pursuit of areas of agreement, even with those with whom we differ, and generous and loyal to those who join with us in common cause. From this chamber of representative government, let all the world know and none misunderstand that I rededicate this government to the unswerving support of the United Nations. to the honorable and determined execution of our commitments to our allies. <laughs> to the reinforcement of our programs of mutual assistance and cooperation in Asia and Africa. and to our Alliance for Progress in this hemisphere. John Kennedy's death commands what his life conveyed, that America must move forward. for Americans of all races and creeds and political beliefs to understand and to respect one another. So let us put an end to the teaching and the preaching of hate and evil and violence. turn away from the fanatics of the far left and the far right, from the apostles of bitterness and bigotry, from those defiant of law and those who pour venom into our nation's bloodstream.
I profoundly hope that the tragedy and the torment of these terrible days will bind us together in new fellowship, making us one people in our hour of sorrow. So let us here highly resolve that John Fitzgerald Kennedy did not live or die in vain. And on this Thanksgiving Eve, as we gather together to ask the Lord's blessing and give him our thanks, let us unite in those familiar and cherished words, America, America, God shed his grace on thee and crown thy good with brotherhood from sea to shining sea. and welcome to Bridging the Political Gap, Season 3. This is the second show, but the first in what is going to be a continuous look at the 1960s and two of the most pivotal administrations in really the whole history of the country. Controversial during upheaval like the country had never known due to civil rights, Vietnam, and Watergate toward the end. They're the administrations of Lyndon Baines Johnson and Richard Nixon. And today, well, I want to introduce you to Lyndon Johnson. We, we left season two at the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. And earlier in the month, the assassination of DM, the president of South Vietnam. And the upheaval that that, that assassination left an unstable government there in South Vietnam. That would be the biggest problem Lyndon Johnson would have to deal with throughout his five years in the presidency is this constant upheaval in Vietnam. But still Lyndon Johnson was able to do an enormous amount of things as president because of his extraordinary 25 years in the legislature as a member of Congress. First, he was a congressman for, for six years. Then he was a United States senator and at 47, the youngest majority leader in the history of the country. He was also a school teacher who taught school in a little town in Texas, Catula, Texas, right out of college. And the poverty and racism and, and those things that he saw there stayed with him throughout his life and were a huge factor in the president that he became when after the assassination of John F. Kennedy, he found himself in the White House. So this hour is going to be just looking at Lyndon Johnson, 
getting to know him. He was a character that was larger than life in so many ways. And how that personality stood out in this unbelievably turbulent decade that became perhaps the most divisive era other than the Civil War that our country has ever faced. We ended up with two of the most extraordinary politicians at the helm of government, Lyndon Johnson, Richard Nixon. And we're going to look at how they tried to weather these storms and deal with the upheaval that was the 1960s. Let's take a look now from a film from the Lyndon Johnson Presidential Library, a look at the life of President Johnson. I want to be the president who educated young children to the wonders of their world. In 1928, a young schoolteacher in Catula, Texas, wrote a letter home to his mother asking her to send 200 tubes of toothpaste. I want to be the president who helped the poor to find their own way. His students, he explained, lacked the most basic necessities. And who protected the right of every citizen to vote in every election. His name was Lyndon Baines Johnson. I want to be the president who helped to end hatred among his fellow men. I think his vision and values were shaped by the land that he came from. So he understood firsthand what poverty was and what lack of education would cause people's lives to not be complete. Daddy was a teacher first, foremost, and always, but he was also a student of the Congress. He would go on to be elected to the House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate, where he would serve as majority leader. In 1963, Vice President Lyndon Johnson was catapulted into the U.S. presidency. All I have, I would have given gladly not to be standing here today. Lyndon Johnson would never forget his students in Catula and all the others he met along the way to the White House. This is a man who truly wanted to make a difference in his world. He wanted to do anything he could to level the playing field. Just five days after he was sworn in as president, Lyndon Johnson appeared before a joint session of Congress urging members to enact a civil rights bill. No memorial oration or eulogy could more eloquently honor President Kennedy's memory than the earliest possible passage of the civil rights bill for which he fought so long. It was the first comprehensive civil rights legislation in the United States since 1875. The key to his success, the ability to work across the aisles. The quote he used to say all the time from Isaiah, come let us reason together. The thought that we can solve these problems together. He would get people who didn't want to reason together, to find reasons that it was in their best interest to do so. The Johnson treatment is a, sort of a one-on-one -on -one of him dealing with people and he would get right in someone's face. Once he got you in his sights and he needed your help to pass the legislative program, you are a goner because Lyndon Johnson was not going to take no for an answer. Lyndon Johnson was a doer. Lyndon Johnson was a people person. 
The phone was his constant friend and pal. If he were alive today, he would want two or three or four cell phones going at once. But don't beat me on that now. You can do it if you want to. You're a hard bargainer. Will you get him for me? He knew he had the power, and he wanted to make a more just society. My first job after college was as a teacher. It never even occurred to me in my fondest dreams that I might have the chance to help the sons and daughters of those students and to help people like them all over this country. But now I do have that chance, and I'll let you in on a secret. I mean to use it. Over the next five years, President Johnson would sign into law more than 1,000 pieces of legislation. He wanted to make this a great society for all of us. And Daddy didn't do things in small measures. There are so many people whose lives have been transformed because of laws that were passed as part of the Great Society programs. His accomplishments in civil rights, in immigration reform. The scholarship programs. Job Corps. The environment. Medicare. The Voting Rights Act. The National Endowment for the Arts. The Head Start Program. The Clean Air Act. Medicaid. The Higher Education Act. I think he would tell you the Voting Rights Act was the most important and the most significant because he knew that if every citizen had the opportunity to participate in the political process, the other benefits would flow. Lyndon Johnson was the greatest legislator that ever occupied the White House and became the most powerful president in perhaps the history of the United States as far as passing legislation. After leaving the White House, President and Lady Bird Johnson returned to their Texas ranch. Their focus was now on building a presidential library that would preserve the records of the past and a school that would educate a new generation of public servants. This library will show the facts, the story of our time with the Barkoff. Is that Barkoff that makes us a unique institution? Lyndon Johnson wanted scholars to see everything in his administration. He didn't want to hide anything. And you and everybody else that sees that legacy can make your own judgment about it, give it your own grade. It's almost incalculable, the progress that was made at that time that, that he oversaw. He had accomplished so much that makes America what it is today. The legacy of what he did is amazing. President Johnson didn't want this institution just to look back. He wanted it to look forward and to address the pressing issues of our time and beyond. Lyndon Johnson believed in the possibilities, not the impossibilities of life. And that was very much at the heart of who Lyndon Johnson was. I hope it may be said a hundred years from now that by working together, we help to make our country more just for all of its people. I believe, at least, it will be said that we tried. Obviously, I'm my father's daughter. I adored him. Did I think he was perfect? Heavens no, I don't think any human being is. You know, my, my father was a very, as Jack Valenti said so eloquently, a very human present. When he talked about opening the library, he wanted you to see him as he said, warts and all. And he said, well now, have you uh, cut out your drinking? 
This is Adam Nagurney of the New York Times. The LBJ Presidential Library announced that it is holding a summit likely to be attended by three of our living ex-presidents to mark Johnson's signing of the Civil Rights Bill. But this is also part of a broader effort by the Johnson family and his aides to prompt a reconsideration of our 36th president and his record. I spoke to Lucy Baines Johnson, his youngest daughter, about his legacy and how she would like him to be remembered as we sat in the presidential suite at the library in Austin, Texas. Look at Lyndon Johnson when he came into the presidency. Look what he looked like when he left. Vietnam was his cross. When young men and women were marching outside those gates of the White House saying, hey, hey, LBJ, how many boys did you kill today? Nobody wanted that war less than Lyndon Johnson. Both of his sons-in-laws served in that war. Lyndon Johnson felt so personally about each one of those young men and women who were fighting that war and the mothers and the fathers and the sisters and the brothers who were agonizing with them because our family was in that position too. So a lot of people like to say the great society is dead. And it's living forever in all of us. Never will we again tolerate separate water fountains or toilets or places on planes, trains, and automobiles. Never again will we say that you can have restrictive legal covenants based on your religion or your ethnicity or your color of your skin. Let us close the springs of racial poison. Let us pray for wise and understanding hearts. Let us lay aside irrelevant differences. My father had impeccable handwriting. He was a school teacher in a time where school teachers really focused on that. The piece of legislation that he would like his, his penmanship to look the best surely doesn't because he would take a pen, start a little bit of a letter, put it down, pick another, take another so that he could hand these pens out to those who were present who had been such an integral part of making it all happen. I said, Daddy, I just got to ask you a question. He said, sure. And I said, Daddy, why with all those great civil rights leaders there, Roy Wilkins and John Lewis and Martin Luther King and such a wonderful cadre brave men and women. Would you give that first pen to that elderly, sort of disheveled Republican leader, Everett Dirksen? And he put his head in his hands and said, because Lucy Banks. I didn't have to do one thing to convince any of those great civil rights leaders to be for that legislation. They were already for it. But if it hadn't been 
forever Dirksen. And his willingness to commit and to bring members of his party with him. Those great civil rights leaders and I, Lucy Baines, would have had just a bill. When you can hear the tapes of Lyndon Johnson in his own words at the time, and all of those tapes have now been open to the American people, and you can hear them for yourself. Now, some of them are a bit difficult for a daughter. Sometimes there's language, our energy, our decorum, that might not be what his wife or mother or daughters would have chosen. But that's, that's the beauty of it. It's Lyndon Johnson with the bark off. It makes it all very believable. And you see his anguish, the devastation he felt over so much that was occurring in our country in terms of civil rights. And you see his commitment to take that pain. It's very important that we not to say that we're doing this and we not do it just because it's Negroes and whites, but we take the position that every person born in this country, when it reaches a certain age, uh, that he have a right to vote, just like he has a right to fight. I think the agony of Vietnam will weigh in the history books just as it weighed on Lyndon Johnson's heart. What do I hope that this great anniversary, the 50th anniversary, of a flood of great civil rights legislation will make the 1964 Civil Rights Act, the 1965 Voting Rights Act, the 1968 Fair Housing Act. I hope we will look back and see the extraordinary accomplishments. If we do that, then it will be a great credit to Lyndon Johnson's sacrifice, Dr. King's, to Congressman Lewis's, to so many thousands and millions of Americans. This is Randall Wallace, uh, your host for Bridging the Political Gap. I want to thank you first for tuning in to our podcast and invite you to come to our website, randallwallace.com. There you can get a copy of our book, Always Vote Your Conscience, Don't Take It Personally, and Don't Fight the Same Old Battles Over and Over Again, with a lot of policy suggestions and things that I think everyone can embrace, an argument for why we need to be working together instead of fighting with each other. Also, you can take a look at the first 11 episodes of this podcast, which was a podcast documentary that looked at the World War II generation of bipartisan leadership that built the American century and the lessons we can learn from them to apply to today's situations. Again, thanks for tuning in to our podcast. And if you've enjoyed our show, please leave us a review at wherever you get your podcast. And now, let's get back to the show. As a school teacher, Lyndon Johnson 
understood the importance of history. And almost immediately, he started tape recording his phone calls and, and some of the meetings in the Oval Office. But he taped literally everything from the start. You, we, there, there was, we're going to see uh, phone conversations uh, that began on Air Force One uh, right after the assassination. And it carries through to his last day as president. He's the only president who did that. There are tapings that go back to Franklin Roosevelt and Harry Truman and Dwight Eisenhower and President Kennedy. And, of course, the famous taping system that President Nixon had, which taped everything. He had a, a thing on his belt that would activate the recordings. And so, Nixon, you get this full, every utterance. But it's only for a period of time because Nixon did not have the taping system to start with. He decided to put it in a little later. And then, of course, as Watergate began to take off, they cut the system off. Johnson is unique in that you're going to see his entire presidency from start to finish on his phone calls. And you get a real feel for all of these, this tumultuous time, because it's also the most controversial and most divisive time. Uh, in our history other than the Civil War. And so you get a real feel for Lyndon Johnson and this era because of that. And, of course, we should be thankful that Richard Nixon also taped uh, and and not for Watergate and all the nonsense that you hear people beat him up about. But Nixon did some incredible things. We're going to look at that uh, later on in, the, in this season. But um, this is an important thing. And we've got some historians that talk about just how important these tapings, this taping system was, and what it did to protect Lyndon Johnson's legacy down the road. Uh, yeah, I was having dinner with all of our friend Harry Middleton, you know, the famous, and I always say the Joe DiMaggio of uh, presidential library directors. I think Mark, you would agree with that. And this was about 1993 or 1994, and I was having dinner with him in the Jockey Club in Washington with uh, Harry McPherson, the honored longtime LBJ aide and public servant in other ways. And Harry began talking to me about these tapes. And he said, did you know they existed? And I, I said, you know, I had heard that he taped some of his conversations, but how many could he have actually taped Harry? And Harry said, well, over 700 hours, and they go from the beginning of the presidency to the end. And I said, well, if these are real tapes, in other words, not just LBJ saying, you know, I'm earnest for peace and I'm doing this and doing, in other words, as long as they were not tapes made for the ear of a later historian, this is going to be an amazing contribution to Johnson's scholarship to understanding him because number one, you know, it's what every historian dreams of, which is you suddenly run into a cache of an original source that is so immense and all-encompassing that it could change the way that we see a president and everything that he did. And the other thing is that I would say, I said this to Harry that evening, and I would say it now, if you wanted a, a source on LBJ, if you could only choose one, I probably would choose tapes of his private conversations I sure wouldn't choose letters. Uh, as we all know, he wrote these lovely letters. Many of them were not written by him. Some of the most heartfelt give you a real window onto the heart, but it's the heart of Jack Valenti or someone else. You know, LBJ did, was not in the habit of pouring his innermost feelings into a letter. 
And, you know, some of the reminiscences by aides who admired him are somewhat restrained. And his memoirs uh, was a noble effort, but I don't think anyone would say that the vantage point, as helpful as it is in certain ways, gives you a sense of LBJ really talking and telling you what was really on his mind. But to have these tapes, this is what you'd really want. As opposed to, let's say, Dwight Eisenhower, you wouldn't particularly want tapes because Eisenhower was quite reserved in private as he was in public. Same with Calvin Coolidge. So the point is, I said to Harry, I'm glad you've decided to open these things because this could be a revolution. Why did you do it? And he said, well, we're doing it for two reasons. Number one, the Oliver Stone law. There was a, a an effort after Oliver Stone was making his film JFK to get files related to the Kennedy assassination open. And he said, I was advised by our legal people that we might not only have a lawsuit of that kind for any of the tapes that deal with the assassination, but also more generally for all the tapes. So I talked to Mrs. Johnson. I said, you know, you've got a recommendation for us, which is, should we keep these closed or they should be, they, should they be opened? And she said, you know, go ahead and open them. You know, essentially, I'm proud of what my husband did. I know that there will be things on them that I don't like because I haven't heard them. But I am confident enough in what Lyndon did that the more people find out about what he did, both the strengths and the flaws, the better, which... uh is just the kind of presidential relative you'd want. I mean, she she showed amazing insight and not only changed history, but I think really changed the way that her husband is seen now by historians and other later Americans. A couple of things. One, I'll step back for a second and answer that question through the lens of my experience as a staff person. So having been Ted Kennedy's chief counsel, having been President Obama's domestic policy advisor, so much happens in the room and so much happens on the phone. And written material can't capture that. Uh, what a memo looks like by the time it gets to a senator or a president has often been edited and re-edited and lots of people put their opinions in and they send things back and scribbles and notes. It will tell you something but when you have those conversations, you get the nuance, you get the tone of voice, you get the humor, you get the anger, things that you can't necessarily interpret from the written word, all of a sudden are very visible, or certainly uh, the, the, the oratory is available to you. And it gives you a sense of the moment in a way that nothing else really can. And for the purpose of the podcast, I know those who listened to it and came back to me said, oh my gosh, I knew that Lyndon Johnson was a character, but I never knew that. I never had a sense of that. And I also know from some other experiences I've had working with other media companies as they've interviewed civil rights leaders from the period, people who were negotiating with him, that after listening to the tapes, they said, I wish I had known that. I had no idea he thought that. So it gives you a real window into what he was thinking and feeling and the strategic mind. And for us, it takes us, it puts us in the room where it happened in a way that nothing else can. Aren't they popular enough to carry their weight in the house like it did in the Senate? 
Yeah, yes, they get a vote on it. Of course. Well, why don't you just bring them on up and vote on them? Well, they'll, they'll, well, now you got to get a little, uh, you got to get some unanimous consent to bring it up, see? Unless they got unanimous consent two or three days ago, and I don't think they did. Well, check that and see if it didn't, and they got to have a rule, haven't they? Yeah, and then I think you can get a rule. Sure, and then let them carry their own weight. And... Well, they're popular as hell, and Brown, over on the Republican side, will vote for it just as sure as hell and help them get the rule because he's got a lot of that impacted stuff in his day. If you have any trouble, call me back. I'd prefer not to get to order the budget over here and try to start in hearings well, on something that's new. But if, if, if you have any trouble, I'll, I'll do whatever you want. i it out for you, man. I I just, I just go on and try to. I think impacted areas is hot as a firecracker oh, for Republicans sure to. It is, and it's hot with everybody. And uh, I mean, with the National Defense Education Bill, that's been on the statute six, eight, ten years, and huh? six, eight anyway. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll work it out some way, Mr. President. Okay, Mr. President. Is there any footwork I can do? To Not a thing. I'll, I'll talk to you. I'll be seeing you. Thank you. Uh, you let me know now if this doesn't work out. That's your first dose of the Johnson treatment. It was a, uh, a combination of bullying, cajoling, flattery, just pouring on top of people. But there is no better example of it than this next phone call when Lyndon Johnson, trying to get his war on poverty started, brings in Sergeant Shriver, who used to be the head of the, or was the head of the Peace Corps, and now he wants him to take over the war on poverty, and Shriver has absolutely no clue what's going on in this conversation, and he's trying to get out of it because he doesn't know what his staffing or finances or or, you know, how they're going to do this whole project. And he's kind of waffling around trying to make up his mind. And as you can see, LBJ does not take no for an answer. This is a great phone call. And it gives you a, a, a window into how Lyndon Johnson operated. Mark, good morning, Mr. President. How are you? I'm going to announce your appointment at press conference. What press conference? Yeah, yeah. Well, God, I think it's, uh, it would be uh, advisable, if you don't mind, if uh, I could have... Uh, uh, this weekend, I wanted to sit down with a couple of people and see what we could get in the way of some sort of a plan. Because what happens, at least my thought is, that what happens is if you, you announce somebody or near somebody else, and they don't know what the hell they're doing or what the program's going to be specifically, and who's going to carry it, then you're, you're in a hell of a hole because you know, they start calling you up and saying, well, now, what are you going to do? Well, don't talk to them. Just go away and go to Camp David. Figure it out. We need something to say to the press.
what you do is you've got to get together and see how in the hell you're going to administer this thing. Then you're going to have to get that bill and that message together. Then you're going to have to get up to that Congress and walk it through. Yeah. And uh, you got to get on that television and start explaining it. And uh, got to get this advisory committee in and see that every damn thing that can be done for poverty is done. So uh, you just uh, you just uh, call up folk. I mean, you may not be at church every morning on time, but you're going to be working for the good of humanity. Yeah. With Sergeant Shriver, you get a dose of flattery getting you somewhere. Well, here is when flattery doesn't get you anywhere. Here he starts wearing out these guys from the Secret Service because he's upset that they've been complaining to old Kennedy people who have passed it along. And, you know, that was never a good way to go. Here is LBJ talking to the head of the Secret Service. And then a little later to his own personal Secret Service guy who had been with him and threw himself on top of Johnson in Dallas. I think you better get all the men assigned to the White House detail together. Yes, sir. And uh, tell them that, that Billy, you know, uh, if they don't want to handle the president, I'll get send up an amendment to get the FBI to do it. I've got all of it I want to take. And I've got a note here tonight that uh, uh, they're greatly alarmed that the morale is very low, that a number of them want transferred, and that it's a great body of men, and uh, uh, that we're going to need them badly in the campaign. But uh, they feel like that the president should never uh, correct them, uh, either in private or in public. I know that you don't like to have your men referred to that way, but I'd much rather sever the connection and be glad to if any of them are unhappy. I think they're damn well paid, but there's a good many of them that uh, uh, could uh, improve themselves, and I have never bitched about it. But if they're going to bellyache, well, we'll just see which one could be the most effective bellyache. Well, I wasn't aware of that, Mr. President, quite frankly, it's still news to me. Well, you better get on top of it, call them all in, and see which one of them wants to tell you can get rid of them, and if they want to clean up their operation, all right, if they don't, well, I'll ask Edgar Hoover to sign me some men to go with me and let you all go back to handling the counterfeit. Yes, sir.
got the number assigned to me now, and if mine are not blessed, I want to bless right quick. Yes, sir. And if I can't ever go to the bathroom, I won't go. I promise you I won't go anywhere. I'll just stay right behind these black gates. But I don't need eight people following me to church. And uh, uh, one man Secret Service driving and one in the car with me, maybe two or three behind me is all right. But uh, uh, yesterday you had six or seven up in there. And, and uh, Walter Troyan has got a column this morning saying that because I turned out the lights, you had to increase your security. Well, that isn't so. Of course it's not so, but I want the figures. And uh, these boys that need jobs, put them to counterfeiting or something else because uh, uh, if you don't do it, I'll commit suicide. Now, there was one person that Lyndon Johnson listened to and did a lot of yes ma'ams too, <laughs> and that's Lady Bird Johnson. And you're going to get to see, you know, she had sort of the image of the housewife, but she was actually a very effective businesswoman on her own, and she built a, an empire off a radio station that they bought uh, in the 50s, I think, but uh, it, it is KTBC in Austin, Texas. But here you'll hear Lady Bird Johnson giving Lyndon Johnson a uh, tutorial on how she thought he did during a press conference, and he does a lot of yes, ma'am, and uh, explaining to do. But it's fun to listen to, uh, and, and it's insightful to listen to uh, Lyndon Johnson's number one advisor. And make no mistake, that's what Lady Bird Johnson was, his closest and most trusted advisor. And you get to see that she was all business in this call. You want to listen for about one minute to uh, yes, my critique, or would you rather wait till yes, tonight? Yes, ma'am. I'm willing now. Um, I thought that you looked strong, firm, and like a reliable guy. Your looks uh, were splendid. The close-ups were much better than the distance ones. Well, you can't get them to do it. Well, I will say this. They were more close-ups than they were distance ones. Uh, during the statement, you were a little breathless, and there was too much looking down, and I think it was a little too fast. Not enough change of pace. Uh, Dropping voice at the end of sentence. Um, there was a considerable pickup in drama and interest when the questioning began. Uh, your voice was not noticeably better and your facial expression was noticeably better. Uh, every now and then you need a good, crisp answer for change of pace, and therefore I was very glad when you answered one man, uh, the answer to, uh, is no to both of your questions. Uh, I think the outstanding things were that the close-ups were excellent. Uh, you uh, need to learn, when you're going to have a prepared text, you need to uh, 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 have the opportunity to study it a little bit more and to read it with a little more uh, conviction and interest and change of pace. Uh, well, the trouble is that they criticize you for taking so much time. They won't use it all for questions. Then their questions don't produce any news. If you don't give them news, we catch hell. So my problem was trying to get through before 10 minutes, and I still ran 10 minutes a day. And I took a third of it for the questions. And I could have taken, if I'd have read it like I wanted to, 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. But I didn't know what to cut out. Mm -hmm. I believe if I'd had that choice, I would have said uh, uh, use uh, 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 13 minutes or 14 uh, for the statement. Uh, in general, I'd say uh, it was uh, a good B+. Plus. 
Here you're going to get a little dose of Lyndon Johnson talking to Hubert Humphrey. Uh, you don't get to hear Hubert Humphrey, you're just going to hear LBJ's side of this call. But he is really, really happy with the speech that Humphrey made. <laughs> he lets him know. This is great. The issues are pretty well set out already. They include war on poverty, economic growth, world peace, security, Medicare, human dignity, human rights, education, opportunity for the young, and the issues of smear and fear are not worthy of this Republican of these days. And the Republicans won't spend a great deal of time on that. But while they're digging there, we'll just be building a better America. <laughs> Damn, that couldn't be better. Now, for anybody who's ever wondered about the relationship between a Democratic president and the National Press Corps. This is a great call. And I want to point it out to you because you will see a big difference between the Washington Post of the Kennedy years and the Johnson years and the Washington Post of the Nixon years. This is, and let me go back to Ben Bradley, who, uh, who was the, the, the vaulted great editor of the Washington Post that everyone talks about, who's as his big journalistic ethic and the hard driving, and he's this wonderful guy that oversaw the great Washington Post investigation into the Nixon administration. Well, Ben Bradley was best friends or good friends with John F. Kennedy and Robert Kennedy, and you notice they get good treatment in that paper. And later on, Ted Kennedy got really good treatment when he decided to run a revolution on Jimmy Carter. Now, you get to LBJ, and this is Catherine Graham the owner of the Washington Post. This conversation speaks for itself as he tries to tell them basically what they need to be reporting on. Uh, and Mrs. Graham had a history of vacationing at the LBJ Ranch. Kind of calls into question that great journalism integrity that you hear so much about and whether or not there really is a double standard between the way conservatives and liberals get treated. Uh, make up your own mind. Hello. Hello, Mr. President. Hello, my sweetheart. How are you? Well, I'm fine. Are you? You know, the only one thing I dislike about this job is that uh, I'm married and uh, I can't ever get to see you. I just hear that sweet voice and uh, it's always on telephone. And uh -huh. I'd like to break out of here and be like one of these young animals down on my ranch, jump a fence. <laughs> <laughs> But do you know what I tried to do in the Point Hill Commission the other day, the K. Graham Commission? Yeah. I talked all day long and into the night on that, including talking to you. But uh, they did Justice Warren turned the justice down, Justice Palmer down. They catch him back and then went to him. He wouldn't do it. I had to come in here and plead with him and finally got him to do it. Everybody else wanted to turn it down. Dick Russell, I had talked to him four times. Oh. Uh, but... Uh, uh, we we went through with with the with all that thing. Now, you know where I had to talk to him. Russell was in Winder. Dirksen was in Illinois. Humphrey was on the beach. Mansfield was on the beach in Miami in houses that people become popular to lend them to them. Yeah. Uh, Charlie Halleck was uh, was out hunting uh, uh, turkey. Gosh. Now there wasn't a human here, yeah. and they're not here now, and they're not working now, and they're not passing anything, and they're not going to. Now, somebody has got to, instead of just writing the stories about how the pages live, or about uh, 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 Bobby Baker's girl, whether he had a girl or whether he didn't, uh, 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 is not a matter that's going to settle this country. But whether we have justice and equality is pretty damned important. So I'd like for them to be asking these fellows, where did you spend your Thanksgiving holidays? Tell me about it. Was it warm and nice? And write a little story on it. Uh, uh, because we were here 
punching, and we're going to have to do it now. If you don't, they're going to start quitting here about the 18th of December, and they'll come back about the 18th of January, and then they'll have hearings in the Rules Committee till about the middle of March, and then they'll pass. When you record all your phone calls, it leads to some funny moments. And we're going to end this show kind of introducing you on Lyndon Johnson with a couple of them. This is LBJ trying to make a long-distance phone call, and this poor operator has absolutely no clue. <laughs> she can barely hear him. They're going back and forth, and this is this is just great. Hello? I'm I beg your pardon? I don't, uh, uh, how many are, are doing what? my dear friend, and that's the president, and you're talking to him. Oh, I'm very pleased. Thank you, ma'am. And who are you? So we are trying to get your call. Uh, uh, good, we are trying to get your good call, you see. Yes, and who are you? I'm the supervisor in London. I'm trying to get your good connection. The, uh, your call is fading on here. Yes, ma'am. I read you loud and clear. You hear me loud and clear? Yes, ma'am. This is, this is the president. Can you hear him? Yes, yes, I can hear. But you say. Well, you may have to repeat. You may have to repeat for us. Yes, well, we'll, we'll put you together again with Karachi and see if we can uh, make the call. All right. Well, you. Uh, we are trying. But you just be sure you haven't got it tied in to anybody else over there. And come on, I'm ready. Historian Michael Beschloss. Uh, wrote, uh, you know, he did the, the book on the various phone calls, and uh, this is a great intro to what has to be two of the funniest phone conversations in presidential history. Uh, and and Michael Beschloss will go into here. He was on a, a panel that was on C-SPAN, um, and they're they're talking about uh, Mrs. Johnson's reaction to some of these phone calls from his books, and uh, it's just great. But this is Lyndon Johnson ordering us ordering a set of slacks from the Hagar uh, uh, Clothing Company and its vintage Lyndon Johnson. And it is great stuff. Which brings me to the Hagar Slacks tape when LBJ in 1964 describes in too, too granular detail how he would like his trousers cut. He's talking to the head, head of Hagar Slacks. And after my first book came out, I was talking to Mrs. Johnson. I said, were you happy with the way that the, the tapes in the book were received. And, you know, she always would tell you what she really thought. She said, well, I was, but to tell you the truth, I could have lived the rest of my days happily without hearing you play the Hagar Slacks tape on TV. But, she said, you should know that tape is my grandchildren's favorite. And I've never quite figured out why that was, but about a month later, I got a letter from old Mr. Hagar, who was still live, offering me a free pair of custom-made Hagar slacks. So that's an experience <laughs> I never had before in this business. Hello. Hello. Uh, Mr. Hager? Yes, this is Joe Hager. Uh, Joe, uh, uh, is your father the one that uh, makes uh, clothes? Yes, sir. We're all together. You all made me some real lightweight slacks uh, uh, that he just made up on his own, sent to me three or four months ago. It's a kind of a light brown and a light green, rather soft green and soft brown. Yes, 
Now, I need about six pairs for summer wear. Yes, sir. So I need about six pairs to wear around in the evening when I come in from work. And I can send you a pair. I want them a half an inch larger in the waist than they were before, except I want two or three inches of stuff left back in there so I can take them up. I vary 10 or 15 pounds a month. So uh, leave me at least two and a half, three inches in the back where I can let them out or take them up and put it, make these a half inch bigger in the waist. Make the pockets at least an inch longer. Money, My money and my knife and everything fall out. Wait just a minute. Now, another thing, the crotch down where your nuts hang is always a little too tight. So when you make them up, give me an inch that I can let out there uh, because they cut me. It's just like riding a, a wire fence. These are almost these are the best that I've had anywhere in the United States. But uh, uh, when I gain a little weight, they cut me under there. So leave me, uh, you never do have much margin there. Let's see if you can't leave me about it an inch from the, where the zipper ends uh, round uh, under my back to my bunghole. All right, then. So I can let it out there if I need to. Okay. Now, be sure you got the best zippers in them. These are good that I have. And uh, if you get those to me, I would sure be grateful. Uh, where would you like to spend, please? White House. I just sure will appreciate this. I need it more than anything. And uh, Now, you give this boy the address, because I'm running for a funeral, and give him address just how to dress these trousers. So we'll send them to you. And don't you you get the measurements out of them and add a half inch to the back, give us an inch to the pockets, and about an uh, inch underneath uh, so we can let them out. Like just a little more stride in the crotch. Yeah, that's right. Yes, sir. Okay, here he is. Glad that you enjoyed the others. Okay, go ahead, please. Hello? Yes, sir, Mr. President. How you getting along? Wonderful. God bless you. Uh, well, we've had a busy week. Uh, oh, and a good one. <laughs> and a good one. Uh, is it warm up there? Yes, sir. It's uh, nice. Well, we, we sure do need some rain down here. Where are you? At the ranch? Yeah, I'm at the ranch. Oh, I wish you get some. Well, I sure hope so. Say, I called, I talked to your boy, I think, while I was here last time, and you don't want me running around here naked, you better get me some clothes. I got ten pairs right here for you, Mr. President. All right. Uh, you haven't made me any shirts to match them, have you? No, but I'm having them made. You get me a, you know, this light brown, uh, this real lightweight brown, uh, kind of a, it's a real softish, uh, uh, kind of a tan uh -huh. that you gave me with some green ones. It's the best color I got, and sure would make a nice uh, kind of a uniform if I if I, I think could. The shirt would be a little too heavy. Wouldn't yeah, it? I think the shirt, the weight would be too heavy. But if you get some shirt that fit into it with double pockets on it, it would be it would get, make big double pockets on the front so that they can so they can put uh, my. Uh, uh, well, I, my, my glasses in the pockets with a button on them. I could always drop my glasses out. Fine. Fine. And, uh, and them make it big enough around because my stomach's so big now I can't to... Say, now, wait a minute, Mr. Chief. Don't get my stomach <laughs> too much, please. We uh, all right. Well, I'm trying to. I'm trying to. How y'all getting along? Oh, we're doing wonderful. Well, that's good. Everything is wonderful. We are very, very honored to, to talk to it. Well, I, I sure do appreciate it. You get them to me as soon as you can, will you? I sure will. Well, you take good care of yourself. I've been, you know, I've been watching you on television, my wife and I, and listen, I'll tell you what, I got all the boys working here, and we are going to carry it.
Well, you just take a little pole of your plant, see how many of them are for Goldwater. I'm worried about Goldwater. Well, that's all right to worry about it, but we're not going to have any Goldwater here. Well, you just check up the folks work for you, see how many of them are for Goldwater, and you tell me next time we talk. I sure will. Uh, I bet you'd surprise you. Well, I know he's got the, you know, yeah, this darn city of Dallas here, they got a bunch of hotheads out here. Well, see how many of them you got working for you. Just ask them, though. Tell them to take a little secret pole, just put it in. Don't tell the pole, put the name, but just take a cigar box and tell them when they walk out, put the name Johnson or Goldwater. Just kind of secret, see how we're going to help Dallas. And, uh -huh. uh, you don't want to know anybody how any individual votes, but just uh, put them in a little secret ballot box, and then you count them, and, and then don't tell nobody but me. That's right. Well, I'll tell them. We want, I want to do it for my own information. That's good. How many, how many people you got working? We only got about 300. To well, that's good. Run the 300. Okay. All right. You just you just put on your hat and come on. All Thank you for listening to Bridging the Political Gap. If you've liked what you've heard, please share it. And we would love to hear from you and your thoughts on, on our show. So if you'd like to, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast. And until next time, thanks again and so long for now.